0: Hello and welcome to your Actives the Byline podcast. I am Evi and on this episode of our podcast, we are wrapping up 2022. 2022 has been quite eventful. We had a war. We're experiencing the worst inflation in years. We have an energy crisis and now the year is ending with a bank, a corruption scandal in the heart of the European Union itself. So it's fair to say that this year has shaped the bloc drastically. But to understand how 2022 events influence the EU, I'm joined by Alberto Alemano, professor of law at HEC Paris University and founder of the Good Lobby Initiative, and Robert Medlin, senior strategist at Vipro International. Welcome to the podcast. EU leaders and officials had a lot to worry about during this past year. The COVID-19 pandemic is still here. It is, but it still exists. So, Alberto, what did EU leaders realise during this pandemic?
1: COVID-19 certainly represented uh, a major catalyst for more and possibly a different kind of integration uh, in the sense that it pushed European leaders to realise that also in public health, they had, first of all, to coordinate better. And in particular, the consequences of COVID uh, in terms of financial impact also pushed them to do something they never been doing before. So we've been breaking at least two taboos. The first one was to create some uh, common competences of the European Union in public health, but at the same time also to allow their economies to do joint borrowing. So in a way, the original recipe of European integration coming together, pulling together competences in order to provide more convincing and compelling answers, it actually worked. It took them a while, but it worked. And I think the European Union emerged out of COVID in early 2022 stronger than when it actually was caught by surprise by the virus.
0: And Robert, the COVID-19 pandemic stopped being the main topic on the news coverage on the 24th of February, when we had the shocking invasion of Ukraine by Russia. How did this event unite, or not, EU leaders, and what other matters called for attention?
2: So this is, uh, if we set aside the post-Yugoslavia civil war, this is the first war of criminal aggression in Europe uh, in most of our lifetime. it is a huge shift of our uh, framework of thinking. And I think that, again, threatened, the European Union democracies have decided to work strongly together and to reach out to the uh, state which is under attack and to help Ukraine to resist aggression. I think that this, uh, in a way, all of that is a surprise, but it comes on top of the von der Leyen Commission mandate to strengthen security and defence work at the EU level. So there's a very, I think, positive interaction between the two, but of course, uh, you can't stop viruses, but human beings can decide not to go to war with each other. So the tragedy of the Russian invasion is very great indeed.
0: However, the safety threat wasn't the real menacing, according to Professor Alemano.
1: We immediately realize how many unintended consequences or potentially unintended consequences, but not necessarily foreseen at the beginning, actually occur. I'm referring to the worst inflation in years, largely driven by an energy crisis that question. Uh, the absence of a European Union energy policy capable of providing common answers. And some competition emerged exactly like during COVID among member states, this time in order to procure, to buy energy sources uh, in order to uh, basically keep people's um, warm, and in particular, to allow the economy continues. And uh, right after uh, the uh, competition continued, but this time was not really about making sure that supply of energy was coming in, but it was about making sure that the economy could up and running. And this kind of fiscal competition, in particular, the one led by Germany, uh, led to one of the major, uh, I would say, division that ever occurred, ever experienced in the Franco-German alliance. So we see Germany going alone. We see France denouncing it and many other European leaders being extremely uh, disappointed by a Germany that goes in, in his own way without necessarily uh, co- collaborating, cooperating, and realizing that the strength of his economy, allowing it to inject so much money into the German economy, actually is so interlinked uh, to the entire European internal market. So this is certainly possibly one of the most uh, shocking uh, elements of the, of the Russian crisis.
0: The inflation we're experiencing is one that has been building up for the past few years since the COVID-19 pandemic.
2: So here is where I think being old helps, because when I was a younger man, uh, double-digit inflation was not so unusual. And I think it has been a huge shock in the sense that very many mortgage owners in Europe for example, uh, these days, have never seen double-digit inflation. Where did the inflation come from? Partly from the war, partly from the COVID-19 disruption of supply chains. And so I think that we see uh, a cumulation of inflationary uh, drivers against which uh, you can see also, even over the last uh, three months, that the economies are beginning to adjust. So clearly, uh, bank rates go up, but also... Uh, the the drivers of inflation have slightly weakened so i think that it's going to be manageable on the inflation front but there are some very weird uh, phenomena in food supply and of course as you say in energy where poorer consumers in our societies simply cannot afford the new prices and i think that's a challenge of solidarity that is testing us all <laughs> across europe and we have to find a way to make day-to-day living uh, survivable, even for the poorest in our societies. That's the challenge.
0: After the Russian invasion of Ukraine, the bloc had to come up with solutions to face the energy crisis, which is a result of Europe's poor energy strategy and its dependence on Russian gas.
1: The European energy policy uh, has been questioned uh, because On the one hand, there was a need to reshuffle the energy supply by going back to carbon uh, sources, uh, seeing uh, the Germans keeping uh, coal plants open in the same way as in Poland, and seeing them also keeping the nuclear uh, plants, reactors open is something that really captures our imagination as Europeans. It's something we would have never expected. So this is one goal, but at the same time, we also have to think about the medium and long-term goal of climate policy, meaning decarbonization. So how do we maintain carbon into the mix in order to be able to go through this winter and the next winter and to allow our economy to continue while at the same time pursuing decarbonization? This is proving a real dilemma where the entire European credibility is at stake.
0: Next year, 2023, is going to be a key year regarding the legislative steps when it comes to the Commission's plans on climate change, says Robert Medlin.
2: So I think that 2023, as the last legislative year of a very ambitious Commission, is going to be a reality check for uh, the Green Deal, for Farm to Fork. How much can we get through the pipeline? Uh, There are some crisis related uh, pushback. Uh, from the European Parliament or the Council on things like packaging waste proposals or uh, the use of pesticides. That's not unusual, it's not unimaginable, it doesn't mean that the projects being challenged are dead. But the ways in which the European Commission chooses to respond to those challenges will, in my opinion, determine how far we get in terms of cleaning the legislative table in the 12 months ahead.
0: You're listening to Your Actives Beyond the Byline podcast. Subscribe to our podcast newsletter on youractive.com slash newsletters. And if you want to expand your knowledge in other fields, you can listen to our tech podcast and our agri-food podcast. And if you have any comments or ideas, you can drop a line at podcasts at active.com Now, the European Union has also received lots of criticism when it comes to its enlargement policy. Ursula von der Leyen, in an act of solidarity, announced that the Ukrainian path is in the EU, something that has sparked the reaction of the Balkan countries that have been in the waiting room to join the EU for decades. But the EU has to rethink its relations with third countries, and the accession process depends on the quality of the governance.
1: I think the Ukrainian uh, demand for accession um, occur in unprecedented circumstances. It never happened in history to see a country undergoing war and applying for accession to the European Union. And this yet again, uh, caught by surprise, European leaders who realize very shortly how inadequate our enlargement process it is in circumstances of emergency like, like this one. Public opinion played an incredible role in pushing pressure on European leaders who basically had to say, well, we are going to recognize candidate status and as soon as the war is over, we're going to be able to negotiate in different chapters and to bring you in. However, I think we all realize, both observers and and public opinion, that the prospect of an Ukrainian full accession of the European Union is not immediate and it might actually require the creation of different forms of alliances between the European Union and third countries. This idea uh, that emerged uh, out of the French president um, uh, had to create a European political uh, community enabling the European Union to establish and to rethink the relationship between the EU and third countries, neighboring countries, seems to be uh, the path forward. It's still an empty box. There's been only one meeting, one summit so far, but it might be actually uh, the privileged uh, way for accommodating countries like Ukraine and many other Balkan countries that have been promised accession, but for which political appetite currently lacks within the European Union and is set to continue to lack for a few more years.
0: Robert, the EU-Hungarian relations have been tense this year as well. Hungary has been vetoing many EU decisions. One of them was the EU fund to support Ukraine and the restoration of the country. How do you see the situation panning out and what message are the difficulties among the two sides sending to the rest of the European
2: members? I think that the Balkans shouldn't assume that because they've been in the queue for a long time, they have to get in before Ukraine. I think it's also to do with um, the quality of governance. And on that, I think we've learned um, from our recent experiences relating to Budapest and even maybe Warsaw, that we have to check more deeply the will to be part of a collective system with common values so I think that the management of a crisis like that is immensely helped by the existence of the European Council, because the European Council is composed of grown-ups, and the grown-ups will not tolerate the sort of uh, flip-flopping of uh, Budapest on these issues. They don't like being messed around. These are serious people. So I think that the the response overall and the management of it will be down to politics, and in the political world if your ask is serious even if it's shocking to uh, senior officials like i used to be it will get through and if you're just messing around the people who want to be treated like grown-ups you'll end up failing and i think that's where all now.
0: and like this we're coming to the end of 2022 this december we have the qatar gate the corruption scandal that shook the EU, involving Eva Kaili, a Vice President of the European Parliament, who was arrested for allegedly taking bribes from Qatar to influence policies in its favour and block criticism against it. Pier Antonio Panzeri, an Italian ex-MEP from the S&D Group, was also arrested, as well as Francesco Giorgi, Kaili's partner and co-parent. Other political names are appearing to be involved in the same scandal. However, the investigation continues. So how was the scandal received in the EU, Alberto?
1: The Qatar gate caught by surprise also the insider, not only European leaders, also the observers, also the people working on a daily basis within the European institutions. We have never seen... Uh, corruption uh, at this level within the European Union, which has always had this reputation of being overall a transparent and accountable institution. I think it's still the case despite the scandal. However, the nature and scale of this uh, particular QatarGate uh, might seem to suggest that here we might be facing a tip of an iceberg insofar as many more people might be implicated. We see now former members Of the European Commission. We see staffs, we see public officials being also involved, at least knowledgeable about those facts. So this is going to be expanding.
0: And why is this scandal important? Why should it alarm not just the institutions, but uh, every EU citizen?
1: It might also be the tip of an iceberg if Qatar and Morocco managed successfully to influence the European decision-making without being caught so far, that basically means that many other countries, China, uh, Russia, who knows, might also have been trying to um, basically penetrate into the European economic and political decision-making over of the years, but by creating um, a situation of distortion uh, in how the European political process has been working. And this should really uh, ring the alarm bell for, for European political leaders, who, in my view, have not realised yet the gravity of this accident. It's much more than an isolated scandal, but is something endemic, which has been favoured by a culture of impunity they have been tolerating uh, within the European Parliament and across the institutions, largely due to the fact that the European Union is overall perceived as far away and therefore doesn't count on the eyeballs of 450 million citizens. If those facts had occurred in the Greek Parliament or in the uh, German Parliament, well, the behaviour and conduct of Mr. Panseri of Ms. Kylie would have been called much earlier in time. So we need to realise the systemic nature of European um, yeah. integration uh, when it comes to democracy. Um, these uh, parliaments, these decision makings, are just so far away and unintelligible to the average European citizens to actually be held into account.
0: Robert, you have experience in the institutions. How a scandal like this uh, can take place?
2: So the first thing I'd say is, yes, it is a scandal. People take oaths in front of the Court of Justice to behave in an ethical way before they become members of the European Parliament, before they can become commissioners. Uh, The council is slightly different. So these people um, have promised to behave properly. And when they are detected cheating, that's a huge shock. So it is a scandal. But man is a fallen creature. So these sorts of uh, sins happen. The important thing therefore for democracy is resilience. And I actually think if you look at what's going on as far as the current leaks from the investigations tell us, um, has there been Uh, damage to decision-making? Probably not. Has there been um, damage to reputation? Certainly yes.
0: And what is Qatar Gate teaching us?
2: After 70 years of
1: European integration, we still don't have a European political space. Our European leaders are elected and selected at the national level. Uh, They are uh, elected on different dates, uh, running for national political parties, as opposed to be part of a European political space, which is visible to European citizens. So basically what we need to do now is a clear acknowledgement that unless we Europeanize politics in Europe, we are not going to be able to catch up with the level of integration we had in society, in the economy, and even in public health and in climate, and in a variety of policy issues where we are much more European than what our European political leaders would like to acknowledge. So, this to me is the root cause of what happened with Catergate. The lack of visibility of the European political decision makings rendered difficult for political leaders who are involved in this today today to be accountable to their citizens because basically nobody knows where they act, at which level, who is going to be taking the decisions, who is responsible for what. So overall, is a lack of political accountability as we have at the national level. This is simply lacking today, and this is deliberate. Uh, our national political leaders don't want to create a European political space capable of, be, of being subject to the same scrutiny uh, they are subject to at the national level.
0: 2023 will be the year for EU leaders to come up with a new vision for the union and how its policies are decided and put into function.
1: European integration has always been driven by crisis, by scandals, by uh, elements of awakening uh, that have allowed European leaders to realise that integration is the way forward. And I expect 2023 will be yet another year in which these past scandals but also new crises, might push further european leaders to democratically uh, imagine uh, a different kind of uh, european community because unless they do so uh, european integration will be losing grounds uh, in terms of uh, legitimacy vis-a-vis, vis-a-vis own citizens vis-a-vis on uh, stakeholders so in a nutshell is no longer about what we call output legitimacy meaning delivering good policy for citizens, but it's also about how these policies are decided, which processes are used, what kind of people are uh, part of the process. This, what we call input legitimacy, is as important as the output legitimacy. And this is something European leaders haven't realized yet, but they are really pushed by the circumstances uh, to, to acknowledge and to act upon.
0: Thank you very much. I am Evy and this was your Actives Beyond the Byline podcast. Visit your for the latest news and if you haven't subscribed to the podcast, you can do so on your favorite podcasting app. Thank you for listening. Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year.